Can you think of anything more liberating than to come together and worship debt-free? I'm not talking about the mortgage you own with the bank or how many payments you have on your car. You can pay those off. Man, I'm talking about a debt that, that buried me. I mean, I was buried. I, I couldn't even, I, there's no interest payments that I could, I couldn't even pay that. But we gather here today to worship a gracious, merciful God who paid what I could never pay. He just, he, thank you, Lord. I don't know how to say it. Church family, do you understand that? <laughs> and here's the thing. His grace not only got me out of the hole. His grace put me in his home. So it's not like I'm back to zero. See, that's not even good news. What's good news is 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's what he did that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's who we are, and this is what God wants us to do. In Christ, God has created from all tribes, all languages, all peoples, one people, one holy nation, one kingdom. God delivered us from darkness and despair and the lethal isolation of spiritual death. And mercifully, through no effort of our own, he brought us into light, life, love, hope, and community. And he did this through the sending of his own son, the willing self-sacrifice of the promised Messiah, the only true king, Jesus, Yeshua, whose name means deliverance. And he did this to call us on his diplomatic mission. For you see, you've not just come to a congregation or a room full of individual worshipers. God has called us as his embassy of heaven. This is an embassy of heaven. And every believer here has been designated the king's ambassador. And he has sent us out into this community, schools, jobs, families, neighbors, living quality, Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-driven lives that will attract the attention of a hopeless world. He sent us to proclaim His excellencies. Jesus, powerful, amazing, wonderful, splendid. And our hope, 
Our hope is not in Wall Street. Our hope is not in warfare. And our hope is not in the White House. Our hope is in a resurrected king who will one day transform our bodies into the likeness of his glorious body. Amen? And that is the simple commission. Against the clutter and noise of our world, our core calling is to become disciples who make disciples for the glory of Christ. Jesus commissioned us in Matthew 28, make disciples, make disciples. A disciple is a learner, a follower, an apprentice, an apprentice. And so to make a disciple is to issue an invitation to apprentice under Christ, to follow him in thought, word, and deed, and to trust that he has my best interest in mind, and to do what he says, and to admire him and esteem him and to desire him. That's what it means to make disciples. Now then, how do you do that? <laughs> how do you do that? Well, how did Jesus make disciples? How did he invite people to apprentice under him? Well, that's what I'd like to, to explore this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to the New Testament book of Luke. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 27. And you'll find that on page 885 of your church Bibles. And these verses tell us what activities Christ did to invite people to apprentice under him. And so I want to read verses 13 to 27. You can follow along with me. And I just, as I'm reading, and as you're following in the scriptures, I just want you to think about this question. What did Christ do to disciple uh, these that we'll see here? Luke 24, 13 to 27. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So, so it's resurrection morning. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. 
But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is God's word. Did you see what Christ did to disciple them? How to, how to issue an invitation beneath the apprenticeship of Christ? Do you see? He took the time. Time. He asked some questions and listened to concerns. And then he turned to scriptures. Time, questions, concerns, scriptures. Let's talk about each of these. First, beginning with time. Jesus took the time. He, he, he took the time to meet with, with ordinary people. Now, this two-minute reading of Luke 24 actually describes a three- to four-hour encounter that occurred. I mean, look at verse 13. It says that Emmaus was about seven miles from Jerusalem. They didn't take an Uber. Okay? That's about a two-hour walk. And now you add dinner preparations to that. And you're looking three to four hours. So what we read in just a, you know, not two minutes, is a three to four hour occurrence. And remember, it's Resurrection Sunday. And here Jesus shows up to these two. Now, of all the people that Christ would make an appearance to on day one of the resurrection, why these two? He could have gone to Pilate. Could have gone to Caiaphas. He could have gone to the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. Oh, the influence they would have had. Right? But yet Christ shows up on a dusty road and spends almost a half a day with, with two disciples, Cleopas, and Luke says, well, I don't know what the other person's name was. Isn't that interesting? Luke, Luke, I, I get to heaven and I'm going to ask Luke, well, you know, who, who was that other disciple? Luke said, I don't know. That's why I didn't include the name. I don't know. I just know there were two. And one of them was named Cleopas. Is it Cleopas' wife? Brother? Friend? We don't know. We don't know. What we know is that Christ took the time with two ordinary people. At least from the world's perspective. You know, we're ordinary has to be one of the loneliest words in the dictionary. 
wants, who wants a bumper sticker that announces, my child is an ordinary student at Westview Elementary? <laughs> uh, who, who, who goes to a, what, what pastor goes to a conference that says, how to be an ordinary pastor? Who wants to be an ordinary pastor in an ordinary church in an ordinary town with an ordinary life? Not me. I've got a Facebook profile to live up to. And yet, really, that's who Jesus takes the time to see on Resurrection Day 1. You see, from Christ's perspective, ordinary isn't mediocre. As you sit there at your desk or behind the wheel or visiting with clients, and you speculate that your vanilla life makes no real difference in the world, would you remember, would you please remember that the eyes of your loving and interested Heavenly Father are watching you and His smile beams. And as you put your head on the pillow tonight and you think about your life and you, you feel small and maybe meaningless, would you please remember that every hair of your head is numbered by your Father in heaven. And if your Father cares enough about you to count your hairs, do you doubt your importance to Him? See, the one who counts your hairs, He also counts how many minutes you sleep, and He counts how many hugs you give your children, and He counts how many miles you commute to work, and He counts how many emotions you experience, and He counts the secret tears you cry and the inner turmoil you feel. And you know why, don't you? Because you count. You count to him. And since you count to the creator of the world, you also count to the ongoing life of the world. Why did Jesus meet with these two? Because they mattered to him, that's why. They mattered to him, and so he took the time. And so, really... Inviting someone into an apprenticeship, making disciples, takes the time. Takes the time. And then, and then out of this time and this conversation and this walk, there's a, there's a talk that takes place. Jesus, Jesus asked questions and he heard concerns. Now think about this for just a minute, what we just read. I mean, Christ has been betrayed and denied and abandoned and arrested and tried and tortured and executed. He dies, rises from the dead, returns to Jerusalem. Man, if it were me, I would, I would shout out, let me tell you about my weekend. But instead of talking about himself, he asks questions. Verse 17, what are you talking about? So he, he wants to hear their story. So Christ remains, first and foremost, a listener. And of course they were put off by the question, what are we talking about? Where have you been? Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? Are you the only one who doesn't know what's been happening in Jerusalem? Well, of course Jesus knows what's been happening. It happened to him. I, I love it. I mean, so, so we, the readers, have information that, that these two don't have. <laughs> I mean, no one could have missed what went on in Jerusalem that weekend. Certainly not Jesus. He was the one who was on the cross. And then Jesus asks a follow-up. Do you see that in verse 19? What things? 
God thinks. So some of the disciples went to the tomb claiming it's empty. We don't know where he is. We can't find him. He's nowhere to be seen, which is kind of funny because he's right in front of them. Luke is trying to tell us what human blindness looks like from God's perspective. It, it, this scene is just dripping with irony. And, and when we see that Jesus not only knows what happened since it happened to him, we also see that he's the only one in Jerusalem who knows the significance of it all. I mean, these two had the facts, as you listen to them, they had the facts, but they, they didn't have the understanding. It's one thing to have the facts, but it's another thing to be able to interpret and understand the facts. That Jesus' visit to earth was a divine visitation. And the Jerusalem residents, they were the ones who were clueless. But you see what Jesus is doing here? As he's inviting them into an apprenticeship under him? He's taking the time. He's hearing concerns. But then, here, he's asking well-timed questions. He's asking well-timed questions. Um, I picked up a book called Jesus is the Question. It's a book about all of the questions uh, Christ asked. And I learned that in the Gospels, Christ asked 307 questions. That many. I learned that Christ is asked 183 questions. And of those, he directly answers eight. Huh? Like a good rabbi. Ask him a question, he answers with a question. That's a good rabbi. That's a good teaching. And, and, and the author says, contrary to how Jesus is portrayed, he does not offer spiritual tips. He does not give us a neat list of 10 ways we can be closer to God. He does, not, he does not provide easy answers. He asks hard questions like, what do you want me to do for you? Or who are you looking for? Or why would someone gain the whole world but lose their soul? Do you love me? Uh, no, do, do, you, do you love me? No, look at me. Do you love me? Questions. Questions have a way of opening hearts. Questions have a way of locating where people are. Questions have a way of disarming people and removing the wall of defensiveness. So, so if we're going to participate in this diplomatic mission of disciple-making, of inviting others to apprentice under Jesus, we need, to take, we need to take the time to connect and invite and come alongside with those that the world would see as ordinary, but God glories and delights in because they're made in His image. We need to listen to concerns and then we need to ask well-timed questions. Lee Strobel is an author and speaker on why Christianity makes sense. He 
had, he had been an atheist. I mean a hardened atheist before his conversion to Christ. And he tells about an email exchange that he had with someone who was very cynical about Christianity. The person wrote, How can you possibly believe in a God that allows suffering on earth? And Strobel, who has a very analytical mind, he used to be a a legal journalist for the Chicago Tribune, he was prepared to respond to that question with a very detailed, logical uh, argument that is often used to answer the problem of suffering. And just before he sent that message, he deleted what he was going to say, and then he responded this way. He said, just out of curiosity, of all of the questions that you would ask, why that one? And then he hit send. And the answer came in another email with a totally different tone. No anger, no cynicism. The person told of his impressive academic credentials. He told of a successful career at the top, only to lose his eyesight to diabetes. And now, no job, no friends, on welfare and food stamps, depression, loneliness, bitterness, and fear. And Lee Strobel said, my heart went out to him. And knowing that changed the kind of conversation that took place. Because that person didn't need an argument for the existence of Christ. That person needed a pastor. That person needed a representative, an ambassador of the chief shepherd. And and suddenly, a door opened to a very helpful spiritual conversation. I'm telling you, the power of a question is its ability to share God's message of hope and grace. And so here are some questions that I would offer you when you are sensing a spiritual conversation that is about to occur. Um, First, you know that's a very good question. Why is that meaningful to you? It's kind of what Lee Strobel did. Or, um, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Hmm. You know, someone says to you, well, I don't believe in God. Well, which, which God don't you believe in? See? What, what do you mean by that? Still another question. How did you come to that conclusion? How did you come to that conclusion? I'm curious. And then here's another one. You'll hear this a lot in our Celebrate Recovery ministry on Friday night. How's that working for you? How's it really? No, really. How's it working for you? And then a last question I would offer is this. May I respond? May I respond? Um, Randy Newman wrote a book called Questioning Evangelism. And the book is cleverly titled because he's not 
suspicious about evangelism, but he's talking about a particular type of evangelism, the type of evangelism that asks questions, questioning evangelism. And he tells about a panel discussion uh, that he participated in. He was actually in the audience, but the panel consisted of four 20 to 25-year-olds. They had no allegiance to Christ. They did not attend church. And the audience consisted of about 100 pastors. And these four had been recruited for pay to be panelists and to answer questions about their beliefs and values and hopes and fears and spiritual perspectives. And the four were promised that the session would last no more than an hour. And they, would promise, they were promised that no one would try to convert them. They were simply there to educate these pastors about their particular worldview. And an interesting hour ensued. And much of what the pastors heard weren't surprising. The four said things like, well, I don't think any religion has the corner on truth, or I think God makes people gay, or I think it's okay to live together before marriage is a sort of a test drive, or I don't need church, I can worship God on my own, thank you very much. And all this went on for about an hour, and it was very informative to these pastors. And then as the hour was closing, the you know, moderator uh, said, you know, we've just got time for maybe one or two more questions. And then one of the pastors raised his hand and said, well, is there anything that would make you want to go to church? Silence. No response. And one of the pastors said, well, you know, what if the sermons were really good? Nah. What about the music? Well, I mean, what, what if the music were contemporary and it was well done? And Nada. Convenience, relevance, program, seminar, you name it. Whatever attractions were suggested to offer them in, we're just kind of met with a yawn. And, and then, then finally someone said, well, do you think you'd go to church if a good friend invited you? And without hesitation, all four at the same time said, yes. In other words, relationships were by far the highest priority for faith formation. In a society rife with virtual interactions and broken families and divisiveness and impersonal technology, people are looking for people not programs to connect them to God. But then this happened. Then this happened. The moderator said, okay, our, 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 our time limit is, is almost up. We have just time for, for one more question. And someone in the audience stood and said to these four panelists, thank you so much for coming. We've been asking questions of you. Do you have any questions for us? And one of the four, the most vocal, immediately asked, yeah, what do you all believe anyway? <laughs> Man, you talk about, I mean, talk about frustration, right? I mean, enthusiasm and frustration, the collision right there in that question. I mean, on the other, on one hand, they were promised nobody would try to convert them. On the other hand, I mean, they get lobbed a question that we dream our friends will ask. And then they only have three minutes. <laughs> but here's what's so fascinating about this. Well-timed questions asked in a non-threatening conversation 
in a safe relationship over time leads to possibilities. Possibilities to explore God's word. And that's where we go back to these verses. And we see that Christ took the time for conversation with questions leading to Scripture. And, and his questions were hard questions because, you know, that last question there in verse 26, he challenges their assumptions, right? You know, you're assuming that messiahs don't get crucified. Are you sure about that? Verse 26. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into glory? And verse 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, so now that he has heard their story, he tells them about God's grand story. God's grand story of salvation. Jesus says, I know you have a story. I know your story. But listen, I, let me tell you about a, a, a grander story. The story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation. In the beginning, God. God created all that is seen and unseen. He created life and planets and stars and the sun and the moon. Did anybody see that, that, that dusty rose-colored waxing crescent moon the other night rising in the southwest? Oh, man, beautiful, beautiful. Who made that? God did. He spoke it into being effortlessly, magnificently. He established Eden as a splendid temple garden. He created the man and the woman, male and female. He ordained them as his priests, his representatives to mediate his presence and to steward and to rule over all creation. And Genesis 1.31 is a beautiful summary to this creation poem. And God saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good, very good. Creation. Creation, fall. Talk about questions. With a question, Satan spoke. Very first words out of his mouth. Did God really say? Was the temptation. Uh, the first temptation wasn't about an apple, it was about the trustworthiness of God's word. The God who said, eat this and you will die. The evil one said, no, eat this and you'll live. You will be like God. Whoa. That temptation still works today. Jesus said Satan is a liar. And that lying is his first language. That's all he knows. And Adam and Eve trusted Satan usurped the rule of God, and their sin had cataclysmic consequences. And it's like a genetic disease. We're all usurpers. We all want to rule. We all want to be God. And their two sons, Cain murdered Abel. And then there was the Tower of Babel, 
an arrogant attempt to reach the heights of God. What a mess. What a mess. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Creation, fall, redemption. Redemption. Oh, the good news is that God does not wipe out rebels. Rather, he takes initiative. And just as we see here in these verses, did you notice that in verse 16? Verse 16 does not say that these two did not recognize him. These verses say their eyes were kept from recognizing him. What's the difference? The difference is, write this down, the divine passive. <laughs> The divine passive, their eyes were kept, meaning someone was keeping. That is to say, God is acting. God is initiating. They are abandoning God's saving plan. That's why they're on the way back to Emmaus. But God says, not so fast, you two. I'm coming after you. And I believe that some of you are here today. Well, we're all here today because of the God who pursued us and who would not abandon us. 2 Samuel 14, 14 says, All of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. And that's the story of the Bible. The Bible is the history of God's work at repairing the brokenness of this world. He started with Abraham. And Abraham came Israel, and from Israel came the Messiah. That's right. God used a postage-sized stamp nation on a world stage, Babylon, Assyria, Persia, Greek, Rome, to show that size does not matter to him. The Word came and became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus lived perfectly and suffered unjustly by crucifixion. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Holy Spirit. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. One day, church family, our emperor will return and he will renew our bodies into the likeness of his glorious body and then all of creation will be renewed. Colossians 3, 4 promises when Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. You see what Jesus is doing in teaching them scripture. Jesus is trying to, to convince them and us today that, that God's word can be trusted. The scriptures are firm. The scriptures are valid. That we have the scriptures in our hands is proof that God has not abandoned us. He's not given up on us. He who began a good work will complete it in Christ. That we have the Bible speaks to the God who takes initiative to reestablish broken relationships. You remember the panelists I was telling you about? And the one who said, well, what is it you believe? And the moderator said, well, Here's what we believe, you asked. What we believe could be called 
mere Christianity. God has made himself known to us so that we can have a relationship with him. One that would help us not only in this life, but in the life to come forever. We also realize that we've fallen short of any decent standard of goodness. We can't even keep our own standards, let alone God's. We've got sin in us, and it's messed us up. It's messed our relationships and messed nations up and messed up our consciences, and, and it's messed up our relationship with God. And we believe that Jesus is the answer to the problem of sin. And he not only taught us how to live, but he died on a cross to take away the penalty for a debt we could not repay. And each of us, have come to the point where we follow him every day of our lives. And if you want to continue this conversation, we'd be more than happy to because we want to respect the hour that we promised. We'd love to talk to you more anytime. And that's really how you make a disciple, church. Time, listening, hearing concerns, asking questions, turning to Scripture. And if anybody here in this room would like to continue the conversation, I'd be more than happy to, as well as our elders and our staff. I'll be in the fireside room. You bring your time, and you bring your questions, and you bring your concerns. And if you ask me a question that I don't know the answer to, I'll say, I don't know. But I'll do my best to find out. And we'll look to the Scripture together. Amen.